Welcome to GalaxyCon Talks Comics with your hosts, Mike Broder and Patty Hawkins. Join us each week as we talk to some of the biggest names in the comic book industry, both past and present. Make sure to follow us online at GalaxyConTalksComics.com. Hi, this is Mike Broder with GalaxyCon, and uh, with me, as always, is my effervescent co-host, Patty the uh, Hawkman hey, Hawkins. Hey, hey, GalaxyCon viewers, how are we doing tonight? What were you? Uh, what was your Batman? Oh, this of? actually belongs to my housemates, uh, Batman sixty six, which as we all know is still the best Batman uh, available uh, in all the fine markets whatsoever, and all the fine multiverses. Every yeah. ask for Batman to save your universe. Ask for Batman sixty six by name. We are waiting on our special guest tonight, uh, Mr. Dan DiDio, writer, editor, publisher, uh, eighteen years with DC Comics from two thousand two to twenty twenty, where he uh, was co publisher for the past ten years. Uh, he is a writer of Metal Men, Superboy, The Outsiders, OMAC, Phantom Stranger, and Sideways. And uh, he should be with us momentarily. In You're fact, here. He momentarily is. now. <laughs> we were just reading your bio. Just my wife in here. She's Hi. the one who figured this out. I am technically dumb. So <laughs> well, thank you, God, you married her. <laughs> she saves me every time. <laughs> thank God. It's so silly, I can't tell you, but it works. What can I do? Um, <laughs> You know, 2020, we're, uh, it's all right. My wife has to figure out how all the tech stuff works for me also. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually, all kidding aside, I call her in constantly for tech services for all this stuff, I, which is bad. I should be learning this on my own, but uh, if I got good help, why should I, why should I not? Right. You I know? mean, you, you, I mean, you've been the boss for, you know, uh, most of your life. So you gotta, you know, uh, you delegate. Yeah, no, no. Outside of this house, outside of this house. <laughs> So Dan, thank you for being here. My um, pleasure. Thanks, guys. Sorry about sorry for the delay. No, no it, it's fine. We you were I, you literally literally came in right as I was just reading your bio. Oh, that's perfect. That's great. I love a big yeah. You made a heroic entrance. So what we normally talk about on the show is a little bit of you know uh, conventions, convention experiences, fan interactions, sure. kind of the fun stuff of the hobby of uh, you know of, of comic guys and celebrities and all that stuff. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, businessy things and, and other things, you know, background, but to start, what was the first convention you ever went to as a fan? You know what? I've been doing a lot of house cleaning since we've been all in the house. Uh, I came across the very first, uh, the brochure for the very first convention I ever went to it was called Lunacon, which was in 1970. Okay. Put it, put it in perspective. And the guest was Isaac Osmanoff uh, there. And, and I think Len Wein, but, uh, but uh, yeah, the first convention I was when I was 10 years old, it was Lunacon. Uh, that's in the days prior to the creation conventions, the Star Trek conventions, early, early days of the convention trail. As a matter of fact, they kept a running tally of the Lunacons over the years that they had it. And I guess they were over a thousand people the year that I went, which was the was the, the big the big hurdle they finally crossed over. Um, but it was it, it was it's kind of fun to see that. So I used to do that. Then, you know, they used to have the, what was called creation convention, Star Trek conventions in our area. Yep. And then they had the Phil Suling Second Sunday conventions, which really were the comic conventions of its time. So those were a lot of fun. I, I'm, a, I'm a big convention goer. I, I really enjoy the experience. Uh, I love getting out there and, and just having fun, seeing what's out for sale, hearing people talk about product. You know, and even during the comic book days, uh, where I went, to, conventions became work for me. I used to do things like uh, on the East Coast, it was Chilla Theater and Monster Mania. And uh, here yeah. on the West Coast, it's yeah. Monster Palooza. 
and uh, that's my uh, that's my, uh, my one of my one of my great vices. I love the monster conventions. Your T-shirt gives that away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't <laughs> must you gotta admit, uh, it must be nice. You can actually don't have not required to wear DC apparel anymore. Uh, <laughs> if it makes you feel any better. I was I was adverse to any DC apparel. You know, I, I, uh, it was you know it's funny because I had a lot of stuff. I I had a, I had a lot of shirts and, and I always felt very weird wearing them. So I have a very odd collection of Godzilla shirts. I have a probably more Godzilla shirts than probably anybody needs. <laughs> Fair, fair. This is great. This is great. Well, uh, yeah, Mike, talk about that. So, you you went into you went into the a writing side of things. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago your name is lingering on some black and white comics. Uh, what were those? Because <laughs> Mike and I were very active in the black and white uh, era as fans and readers. So, uh, what's 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 floating around out there? Uh, these it was uh, there was a company called Revolutionary. I did some work for Revolutionary. Uh, under a pen name uh, for a period okay. of time, okay, because uh, they were unauthorized biographies, uh, so I probably didn't want my name associated with the biography. They had done a, there was a series of unauthorized biographies that was put out by Revolutionary. They had a separate imprint under that, and then I had done some work for them on some of their horror books. A were those of times. were those the guys that did like the Woody Allen one? The, it was I think it was called Personality Comics. Personality. They I did remember, a lot of yeah. Star Trek ones. A lot of them based on a lot of the unauthorized biographies of the Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. Talent and some musical talent too. I did a lot of the music ones. Okay, so so Patty, hang on a second. I did I did a comic on Paula Abdul. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Listen, awesome. I wanted to break into business. I figured there, that was my big in. <laughs> there, there, there are worse things after research. Yeah. So there. So, they, so they, yeah. So I, did, so I don't have the seventy book. Oh, jeez! I got you. Got this sixty-nine. Holy hell! That's the year before me. But there I found go. the sixty-nine book. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I yeah. I, uh, You're the first person who knew, knew what Lunacon was. <laughs> in sixty what in sixty-nine. Well, you you were a lunarian. Yes, I was. One of my uh, one of the weird thing I collect is I collect because I run conventions, I collect old program guides. Yeah. From conventions. So I have probably I don't know, a thousand or so convention program guides going back to nineteen thirty nine. Well, if you need if you need a seventy, I got two of them. So if you need one. <laughs> All right, I, I uh, he's he's gonna hit you up on that. Because on my Lunacon, I go from sixty nine to eighty five. Oh, there you go. Okay, well, let's see what we can do there. And yeah, uh, and I've got I've actually got the creation shows, uh, the Star Trek creation shows, seventy two, seventy. I've got I've got mo- I think I've got all of those. Yeah, those those are a little those are a little more slick. You know, they're a lot more fun. Uh, First time Mike and I hung out, he was like, we were feeling each other out. And he said, can I show you my personal collection? I thought he was going to show me some Silver Age, Golden Age. Yeah, he yeah. pulls out the magazine boxes of all these program guides. And he saw me just lose my mind because I was like, these are the relics of our culture. Ah. Well, you want relics of the culture. I got into everything from my sister. My sister was my sister was uh, hospital was was in the hospital for about seven, eight years of her life with uh, various conditions. She was on crutches, but it never slowed it down. Mm. She's the one who took me to all these shows. She was the big collector. Uh, that's the reason why I have it. I mean, the funniest part, I found it, the 70 Lunacon collection book on it. She used to be an artist as well, so she used to do a lot of sketching on them. So she's just, she, it's like this, this, this timestamp of that period of time because she did caricatures of all the people that were attending the show. So it's a beautiful thing. But if you want, if you want that collection of, of time, I've got a collection. She was very big into Broadway. Uh, I've got a collection of playbills. That goes back to 1956, 
to about 1982. <laughs> so very cool. insane shows and actors and all these things. And it, it's just amazing to see how many people were on Broadway and some of these shows that you might've heard about. Um, I, I just, I can't part with it. I just, you know, you can't let, the, let go of those things. You just love to have them. So it's a lot of fun. Does she have the one for Carrie the Musical? Uh, no, no, that's a, that's pa after she passed away. Oh, so, uh, yeah, but uh, she, she has it through fifth. I have, I have the original, you know, the, Superman, it's a bird, it's a plane. Oh, Superman. Up, up, plane yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I got that. I got a bunch of crazy stuff, a lot of fun stuff. You've, nice. you've seen, you've seen the, uh, the recording of It's a Bird, It's a Plane? Yes, I have, I have. Oh, my God, it's so bad. Yes, I know. <laughs> it was like one song out of the whole thing that, that stuck. I don't know how that came to be. <laughs> well, those, things were, those things were being traded around by fans and at conventions, you know? Yeah. All the bootleg guys had him in. Yeah, yeah. When you think about it, the the the, the lead was Ted Cassidy, uh, not Ted Cassidy. What's the guy's name? Um, Jack Cassidy. Jack Cassidy was the lead, yeah. and he played like a peripheral character. <laughs> had nothing. wasn't Lo wasn't Superman. Was the Lois? He was like some other newspaper guy, and he wound up being the you know the 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 big you know, big draw, big star draw. So who figures? I don't know. Anyway, we're off track. I guess. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, that's that's what we're about. We're we're. We're, we're, just, we're just having we're having fun here. One thing I would love to talk about a little bit is you did a stint in animation. Uh, yeah. How did you, how did you how did you parlay into that? Going from the the underground comic scene as it was. Yeah. How'd you, how'd you get into that? Well, it's funny. Um, my underground comic scene was actually a side a side interest. What happened was I was always interested in comic books. I always wanted to be. I always read comics. Never you know, and I've always liked to write. So what happened was when I was I was working in television, I was. Um, I worked in various departments, but I worked in publicity for a while on the soap operas. And then I wound up in children's television, an executive on the children's television. Then from there, I worked for an animation company as a story editor, as a writer, and ultimately as their developer of, of new ideas and new series. And that ultimately got me into DC. So I've always had my hand in it. But even while this was all going on, I was always a comic collector. So had friends and connections in comics. When I was working publicity, I was doing, you know, these little black and white comics over here. I was also helping Joe Casada and Jimmy Pamiati do publicity for event comics when they started up. Mm -hmm. So there was, I was working, doing some of that. I was doing some writing for some of the other magazines. Uh, Fred Greenberg, speaking of convention running. Yep. We uh, have uh, Comic Book Week and a couple of other support magazines. I was doing writing for him on that. And I did, uh, I did a, a big piece on the Cubert School and things of that nature. So that was a lot of fun. Then I used to do, because I was friends with Jimmy Pamiati, we used to do a lot of writing together. Came close a couple of times, both at Marvel and DC. And then ultimately we wound up on Superboy, which is still one of my favorite stories of all times on how we got there. And it's just, a lot of these things I just happened to stumble across um, and, yeah. and stumble into just not through searching, but because the opportunity presented itself and jumped at it when it came around. So cool. even my start at DC was by accident, not by, not by, by, uh, not by a real search for, for a job. Or you, uh, you were on the drink and draw thing last yeah. week. Yeah. You told an interesting story and I don't think Patty's heard it about how when you were in production, the production side, you got pitched by Stan Lee yes. for some cartoons. Yeah. I, I did hear this story, but by all means, you can relay yeah. it to our viewers. Yeah, it was, it's a it good was, one. It was an interesting thing because I had a good, you know, it's the first time I ever met Stan. It's, you know, you got to, I had the pleasure of meeting him several times, but this is the first time I met him. Uh, and he was still with, Marvel was still part of New World, and they had the deal with Fox Kids 
mm-hmm. for shows. But the deal for Fox Kids was having a problem, so they decided to shop elsewhere. I was at ABC. So Stan comes in with the New World people to pitch a couple of cartoons. And I am over the moon about this. I can't wait. But because it's work, I have to shift into work gear. So he comes in, he starts to pitch. And he's pitching a real good pitch, explaining to me about about he wants pitching Captain America and the Avengers an idea. But also we were talking about the potential. He said, I really wanted to get a Thor show off the ground, but it was hard to do. We're talking about if it works better in Asgard or on, on land, you know, what works better as a kid's show. And in the middle of the pitch, my friend, my boss, leans into Stan and she goes, do you know he was so excited to see you, he couldn't sit still all day. And almost like he's flipped the switch in Stan Lee. Stan Lee went from this guy who was speaking – and, and giving me this really constructive exp- ex- explanation on why Thor could work as a children's show to a guy that turns into the, the Stan Lee that everybody knows. The oh, character. The Stan Lee character. And he starts, and it, the whole meeting just went downhill from there. And, you know, it just, I was, I was so embarrassed and so deflated. I was sitting there like, I can't believe it. Because you had that moment to meet somebody that you respected so immensely and speak to them at peers. And that opportunity is just so overwhelming and so much more for me, you know, that's why, you know, I'm always looking and, and that's why I like to talk to a lot of the fans that shows they remember these moments so clearly and they remember it so well, and you might not remember it, but it leaves such an impact. And one of the first things that happened to me starting at DC is when I, I met Dan Jurgens, and I, I had gone to a convention and Dan Jurgens on a convention and it was when they launched booster gold. And I remember, I forgot what it was about, but somehow I got, really at it with him at a convention from the audience about Booster Gold. How do you consider him a hero? He's stealing rings. He's doing all these things. I was, you know I, still, I went into you're, the whole You're not wrong. You know, and like, I'm like saying, so how do you do this as a hero thing? And he was explaining, explaining, explaining to me, right? And I just remember how gracious and how pleasant and how engaged he was in the conversation. So when I meet Dan, you know, second or third time in, I said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but I was at a show and you know, and, you know, and I explained the whole situation. And he just looks at me blankly and goes, having a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, ah, oh, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, I, yeah, I can understand that. Meant the world to me, you know, meant the world to me, but he didn't remember it. So when you're at it, that's why I was ever at a show, whenever we're talking to folks, you got to remember how important it is to the people you're talking to, regardless of if you think it's crazy or it's a think it's you're in a rush. You, you can't do that. You got to remember that this is so important to them, and that's why I love conventions so much. Because I think, I think one of the experiences, you know, I think one of the great things about your tenure at DC was not only your appearances at conventions, your but you also you did the road shows for retailers. Mm-hmm. You were out there on the front lines all the time. I mean, yeah. you got to just, you would just grab some people and you just go. And, you know, there's, you know, there's two types of people that, you know, if you're in that publisher role or editor in chief role or, you know, chief, you know, whatever, there's the ones who are, you know, office bound and don't, you know, don't go out and press the flesh. Yeah. You were always known as the guy who, you know, went amongst the people to preach the gospel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I started at D.C., that was my plan. OK, that's I said, if you're going to go out there, we've got to engage. I, and I said that to Paul right off. I, at that point, Marvel was very aggressively engaging the fan base and out there and aggressively attacking D.C. in some ways. Playfully, but, you know, it's it's it's, yeah. it's there. 
And I said, come on, let's, let's, let's mix it up. Let's have some fun. I'm like, I'm, I love that. I love that. I love that whole, that energy that comes with it. And, you know, and Paul kept me on a real tight leash, you know, and I always like to hold me, he's pulling me back. Like, I'm looking, you know, like I'm on a, on a chain there, but um, he kept me on a real tight leash and uh, rightfully so, because he says, know what you're talking about before you go out and speak, you know? And so for the first two, three years, I was, deeply ingrained in learning the systems because quite honestly, I was an outsider at DC comics. When I came in, they, you know, everything was about promotion from within. Everything was people who came up through the ranks all the way through. And here I am coming in at a level that basically bypassed the system. It's one thing to bypass the system. It's, it's another thing to ignore the system, meaning that it's one thing to bypass it, but you have to understand it, understand how it works, respect it, Realize what works and what doesn't work. And then as you try to change it, you change it from a base of knowledge, not from just arrogance. You know, because a lot of people come in going, I'm in charge. I'm going to do it my way without even understanding what the way was beforehand and why it worked and why it got to where it was. I spent a lot of time with everybody at D.C. finding out why they did everything. And when they hit the special, whenever they hit the answer, it's because that's the way it's always been done. Then you go, OK, you put a check mark next to that statement and go, OK. Let's explore this because if we're doing it just because it's the way it's been done, then we might have lost the reason for doing it or we might not be doing it for the reason it was in the first place. So that's how I used to dissect things and pull it back together again. But part of what I said is that I want to engage. I wanted that back page to talk to the fans. I wanted all these bits and pieces to make it community because it's the community aspect that I think separates comics from all these other mediums with our characters. And if we can't engage our fan base and make them feel like they're part of this, then ultimately we're just throwing more at them like every other business and every other. And the other ones are $150 million movies and concepts. So, you know, they have a much bigger budget to get in front of your face. So the only way we can beat them is by getting in there and mixing it up with everybody and, 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 and you know, being a little bit of a rabble rouser, having some fun and, I think that's half the joy of what we're in. It's people love talking about comics. We do. So make sure you get a chance to give them a form to speak and listen to them when they talk and, and have fun with them when they do talk. You know? that, that mentality was the Marvel mentality from Stan, you know, through shooter, you know, I think to Joe now yeah. where Marvel always had a guy who was out in front, you know, uh, you know, during their, you know, not, you know, there are a couple of guys here and there that just were quiet, but, you know, uh, Stan, you know, Shooter, always in the backs of the books, always going out, speaking of the world. At DC, it wasn't like that. You know, Paul didn't really go out and, and cultivate a personality. Carmine didn't really cultivate a personality. When when Patty and I were younger, I, I guess it was Giordano, Giordano, who I love Dick. Uh, you know, I, Dick, Dick was very, very yeah. good to me when I was starting with shows. Yeah. And I always loved Dick. But he wasn't the guy going out there preaching. Yeah. And, you, I think, were the first guy at DC to really be like, no, we gotta, we gotta sing this you, thing. I was and gonna I, say, this is, let me correct that one second. I was the, definitely the first guy who did that. Not the first person. Jeanette Kahn did it. <laughs> Jeanette, 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 with the publishorials, and when she took on, she's all personality. You know what I mean? And she came out there and she made sure people knew that she was the new publisher in charge and that she had her fingerprints on me going there. And I remember, I when I when I'm doing. When I'm doing the my uh, my my pages in the back of the the DC, the DC Nation page in the back of the DC Comics, I was not doing bullpen bulletins. I was doing Jeanette's publishorials. That's what I used as my template, right. um, which was much more 
focused as you're, you're talking to somebody as a, almost like a peer in some ways and you're promoting, you're not overhyping, you're right. really getting in there and, and talking to the, getting behind the scenes a little bit. Cause I, I, anything that anybody that gave me a shot of behind the scenes, I, I just, I would follow them anywhere, you know? So I'll yeah. say one thing though. Uh, Absolutely. Every show I ever saw you at, you were at the forefront shaking hands and kissing babies. I mean, you really, Mike and I, we talked about this with all the guests we have in here before. There are guests, whatever medium or comic wise as it is, they can they can do the job at the tables and blah, blah, blah. But you're walking around and I see people come up to you all the time. Hey, Dan, hey, this is, what's going on with Airwave? And then yeah. to, hey, we're working on it. But the, you, you would stop. You would give them their, like I said, you gave them their moment. You absolutely gave them their moment. You thanked them. And I, 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 I watched you one time and people was coming up to you. Just if they always walked away happy or at least satisfied that they got a real answer from you and not a political, hey, keep keep buying. We'll work on it. Look, you know what? That's I, you know what the fun part was working with Jim. And this is the this, honestly the fun part. We were we were completely two different personalities. They complimented very nicely together. And, you know, Jim had a lot of talent. I had no talent, so that worked out good. But Jim was also the superstar. You know what I mean? And he was a celebrity. And that's the way it was positioning. So I got to be the every guy. You know what I mean? Which is where I feel much more comfortable. I'd much rather roll up my sleeves while Jim is up on stage talking and sit in the fans with the fans, watch him and talk about what's he talking about, you know, and have fun with that. That's the – that's you know, because that's – that's the experience I like walking away with. You know, the best, the, the greatest compliment I ever got from a panel. <laughs> best compliment I ever got. Some fan comes at me and goes, that's the greatest panel I ever see. You said nothing. I have no idea what it was about, but I've never had more fun in an hour of watching a panel. I said, bingo. Absolutely right. Because if I'm going to go up there and read, if I'm going to go up there and read from a uh, from a from a catalog, I want I want to kit myself because I always I used to laugh. I said I said everybody every time I said you guys are going to come up on a panel with me and I'm going to put you all. I used to say everybody with me. I said we're going to put you on the spot. The one thing you're not allowed to do is yes, I'm working on a new book. I, I can't talk about it right now, but um, I'm really excited about it. Um, you know you're going to love it. Uh, everybody's going to love it. It's going to be the best thing we've seen for quite a while. So uh, when it comes out, don't be surprised about how good it is because it's the best thing I've ever done. Thanks. And, How many times have you seen that? <laughs> and and honestly, a lot of comic book talent. I mean, yeah, and it's nothing against them. It's, it's just they're not knows. they're not outgoing to them. Man, no. you were you were getting them a look, guys. You're pulling them a little yeah, bit most, out of their shells. Most, most of these guys are writers and artists, and they're you know used to sitting. You know, comic books are a very solitary medium, right? Like yeah. guys work from home. Many of them, they're not. You know, they're they're in a book. They're they're drawing. They're they're writing. They're not, you know, there's, there are personable people in the industry. There are a lot. There's also people that are not. And, and it's difficult for them to emote on that stage. Exactly yeah. what you said. Head down. I'm working on this thing. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. And, and the other thing, too, when I do panels, I know, all the, I know everybody on my panel. I know what they like, what they don't like. I know what their interests are. I know what they like to talk about, what they don't like to talk about. I know their funny stories that I know how to extract out of them because they tell me in private and somehow I'm able to pull it out, you know, and get them to tell that story on, on the stage. We have the infamous Keith Giffen and the uh, Rhesus Monkey story, which is still possibly one of the greatest stories we can tell on a panel. has nothing to do with comics. It's great. You had uh, – you had uh, Emmanuel Lupacino admitting that she was a microbiologist dealing with toxic viruses. I mean, I, and somehow she gets into comics. I don't know. But I, that's the stuff that I, 
it just gives it actually makes the fans feel better with the people because they get to know who's up there talking and what and, and I think that makes that connection a lot stronger. I mean, I did something once a good, quick story. I did I did something once that worked really well and really badly to show the difference between, between writers and artists. So I brought a bunch of writers on a panel and I said, okay. I'm not going to ask you about your book. I'm going to ask you about the guys next to your book. <laughs> so you're going to talk about his book. And so the writers, they were great. They were, they were, they read the other guys' books and they knew stuff and they were saying, this is going on and that. And it was this really fun, interesting panel about everybody talking about everybody else's work other than their own, you know, and, and they would say something and the other guy go, no, that's not what I meant in the story. And, you know, so there was this great exchange. So a couple of months later on a panel with all artists, so I get on the panel with all the artists and they're all sitting there. So I'm going to do the same thing. So I start to ask them, so what do you think of so-and-so's book? How do you like it? And the guy looks up and he goes, I don't know. I'm, I'm drawing all day. I, I don't get a chance to do anything except my own page. I'm like, oh, okay. Next guy. And no, no, I, I, I actually don't read anything. <laughs> and I'm like, dead silence. And I'm like, this is going horribly wrong. <laughs> You're on the comp list, damn you it. Gotta do that. Hang on. You got to do that panel with Brad Walker. Because <laughs> Brad reads everything. Yeah, it was just one of these. It was just this weird mix panel that everybody. It was the most introverted group, and I thought I'd be able to pull it out of them. I got nothing. We, we if this was a radio show, you would have had an hour of dead air. You know. <laughs> so basically, I, I think I, I think you're an entertainer at heart, and, <laughs> uh, and and that's what it is, and that's what yeah. that's the spin that you you brought to DC that I think I think got you in the door. And again, you. You didn't go in there, you know, kicking down the sandcastles, like what works, what doesn't. And you gave a vitality to your tenure that, that I don't think DC may ever have had. I mean, again, you, I know you mentioned Jeanette and everything yeah, else, yeah. too. Jeanette didn't have the advantage of the Internet presence and yeah, the, prolifer exactly. and the sure, proliferation sure. Of, of the convention culture and, and right. everything else. So basically, she blazed the trail and there yeah. was just more forests that grew up by the time that, yeah. that you were able to walk through it. Yeah, but it, I, it, there's, a, there's a page of art. That if I ever wanted to own one page of art, and I, I want to say I got to I got to go see if I remember correctly. It's it's a backup story in in uh, Fantastic Four Annual Five, and it's called "Lo, There Must Be an Ending." I believe that's the title. It's a shot of Stan. He's not standing on a table, but he's standing on furniture with a helmet on and a sword. He's oh yes, you know, he's dictating the story, and the whole place is kinetic and crazy. And yeah, he's like doing that. Hey, yeah, he's doing that, and the writer and Kirby supposedly drawing. Everything's going crazy. Roy Thomas is in the trash can. Yeah, trash exactly writing. And I look at that page, and I said, "That for me is the comics business." That is my image of comics and how they're created. And I don't care. I can work in a company for 18 years and maybe never experience that moment. And it will never change that perception for me. For me, that is how comics are made. And that energy and that excitement has to be taken out and exploded elsewhere in order for it all to all work. Because that's we all sit here and... There's a joy that comes with your first comic. There's a joy that comes with this material. It's 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 not should not be this overwhelming burden. It should be this massive release of enjoyment and fun. And that's the stuff that that's why I love conventions more than anything else because that's when you see it. That's when you see people actually coming to you because they truly love the experience and the craft. And 
you know, you got to you got to meet that with the same level of enthusiasm they, they, they bring to you. You have well, that, to. That was the whatever, you, you know, good, better and different about Stan Lee. That was one of the things that he brought to this industry was this idea that the bullpen was a bunch of crazy, wacky yeah. people and that him and Jack and, and Ditko and and uh, John, John Verbraten and all these guys, Marie Severin, were having yeah. a wild time. And, you know, they're all working from home. There's no real office, but he's yeah. creating this persona that they're all they're all having the greatest time. And as a reader, you're like, oh, my God, this is this has got to be the most fun job in the world. Yep. You know, this has got to be the best thing. I, I, yeah, I bought into, I bought into it too. Yeah. And that's why so many people want to take tours of these offices. They don't want to see a bunch of people and stand in front of computers because that's all it is, you know? And, uh, but they want that tour of the office because they want to see that energy. They want to see people running through the halls with pages, you know, screaming and artists fixing things on the go, which we've done by the way, but <laughs> we, we literally, there's a couple of books we didn't have a title for until, until 10 minutes before it was supposed to go to catalog. And, uh, and literally there's a, there's a classic on the, on the countdown to infinite crisis, 80 page special we did. Literally we had Phil Jimenez in the office designing the new interpretation of OMAC that had to go within a half hour. <laughs> Or else was going to miss everything. He was going to blow everything, and we weren't. We couldn't lock the design down. And he, we had him in there. We're all yelling at him over his shoulder, and he's there drawing away. It's awesome. <laughs> you well, you just mentioned OMAC, and a little while ago, Patty mentioned Airwave. You're known as like, I guess you were a fan of some really like some of the obscure guy, you know, comics, or not like some of the not some of the more popular, you say, A list. Uh, I live that. I, I, you know why? Because, it, okay, as a fan, I just, I'm drawn to all the crazier stories. The crazier, the better. Yeah. Uh, more eclectic, the better. Something that challenges me. Just shows the pre- the creativity of the people behind the scenes. Or the lack of creativity behind the scenes. Which is even half, even twice as much fun. Because you know what they're trying to do, but boy, did that miss. And there's something enjoyable about it. I have the same, unfortunately, I have the same taste in movies. But I, I love all the crazy characters. And, I, you know, I would rather... As a writer, as a fan, I would rather read or write a OMAC or a Phantom Stranger or uh, Forever People or any of these crazy things than Superman, Batman is Superman and Batman. It's what you expect. Um, there's greatness. There's a lot of fun to it. There's all that. But what gets me jazzed is having these things that aren't supposed to work really work or overachieve. That's the big win. Some of these things you have to maintain a certain level of success on or else you're considered a failure. The other ones are there's no pressure to succeed, and it does succeed. You know, it's a monster win. That's why for me, when uh, Tom King and Mitch Jarrods did um, Mr. Miracle, it was a fantastic. It's it's wonderful to see that thing because they they took risks. They they tried to change it up. They did something different. They were they were they were bold. They were bold in what they were trying to accomplish. And I, you always got to challenge people to, to be bold, as much as people complain about change they really want it they just want good change and ones that are consistent and make sense the place we used to get hammered the most was when we make changes that were inconsistent with the expectations of the character if you can make changes that seem tied to that then you're able to be a little more successful you know it's the infamous baby in bathwater, as I like to call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Personally, I, I, I think, I think history is going to be very kind to your tenure. Honestly, <laughs> no, seriously, because you, honestly, you, you got, you got on base, and yeah, there were a few things I, as a fan, was like, oh, I don't know. But honestly, I think 
a lot of the more stable titles. And again, again, you you were never afraid under your watch to explore the odd corners of the DCU. Even if it was just let's throw the fantasy characters into Wonder Woman. If anything, we just got to redo the you know the, the trademark stuff on them. But you had a very really fearless fearless uh, fearless run on that. And we did, and, we, did, we, we, we did Green Team. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you did. I mean, and why, what are you thinking? And why dude? not? <laughs> and why the hell? You know not? What, but that's my answer. Exactly. I, I'm going to say something that's going to sound terrible, but I guess I can say it. We, if there are so many important jobs in the world where you, if you make a mistake, they have serious consequences to what happens, you know? <laughs> and, and if we make a mistake, we just make another book the next month, you know? So why wouldn't you want to take a risk? This is the places where we should be taking risks. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into surgery and tell, hey, guys, let's come up with a new technique on surgery yeah. today, you know? <laughs> But, you know, I, you got to we, we if you're in a creative business, the, the job is to constantly push. And my role was to basically pave the way for other people to be creative behind the scenes, to allow them to take risks. And, you know, and so therefore I had to get in front of everybody and say, let me pave the way. So you guys keep on taking your chances and we'll we'll see what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, the last thing I wanted, I, the last thing I ever wanted to be was custodial. I'm not a, I'm not I'm not good at that. I'm not good at maintaining a status quo. Um, that's that's not you know that's some that's somebody else's job. Yeah. Is there is there anything like that you could point out to me and, and say this is a thing that I'm very proud of that people might not think of? Not like the typical oh this is the best thing I ever did, but something yeah. unique that nobody would ever realize that you're proud of this accomplishment. It's 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 hard to say. You know, I mean, everything has its pluses and minuses. You know. Unfortunately, much like all the talent, I have the same same weakness as much of my talent. You can get a hundred positive reviews and one negative, and all you do is whine about the one negative without understanding the hundred positives completely outweigh it. For me, I mean, it's what I what I loved is the constant. It, it's it's hard to say because I never really dwell on anything. I try to always constantly move forward. So as soon as something's done, people used to joke with me at conventions because I'm always constantly giving stuff away. You know, it's talking because. In my mind, I forget where we are in the schedule when I'm talking. I'm looking and talking about books, working on books a year out, not realizing what's out at the moment. And I'm talking about things that I've already put to bed that still haven't come out yet as if they're six years old. You know, so I I kept on shifting time in my mind. So in my mind, it's like once it's done, we move on to the next thing. Next, It's a very television because my background's all TV. Before, before comics and television mentality is we'll get them next episode. We'll get them next episode. And I used to say that to the guys. We'll get them next issue. Don't worry about it. It's good enough. Go. And it's horrible to say that it's good enough. But when you're in that type of, and I hate to use the expression, factory position because you're constantly producing, it's a factory. Well, you're in the hamster wheel. Uh, yeah. So you got, you can't dwell, you can't over overthink. And, and I, I made the expression, which I've actually a couple of people come back to me on already, which is kind of fun. I said, art is accidental. You know, a lot of people are out there and they're trying to craft art, you know, something that is going to stand the test of time. But most of the things that stand the test of time weren't built that way. If you listen to Alan Moore speak about Killing Joke, you know, he almost wants to discount it as anything less than important. And here we are holding that as as the quintessential Joker story. You know, it's 
It's certain things just happen. It's the right moment, right time, right people, right mix, right everything. And it's funny because it's, it is a level of alchemy in comics you just don't understand. You could take the, the same combinations and mix them into different packages and not get the same results. You know, and I could take the same artist mixed with the same writer and move them onto a different character. And you think because they did something wonderful before, they'll do something wonderful again. And it's not the case. And then you can go the opposite. You get two people who could barely talk to each other, haven't turned out anything of note, and all of a sudden come together and you've got something that's beyond understanding. You know, it's, it's just the right, right character, right artist right writer at the right moment in time and boom, you got something that's just amazing, you know, and you got a lot of things that just fall by the wayside. So when you ask me, what am I proud of? I got a bookcase in my, in my house. That's full of shit. I'm proud of, you know, everything on my bookcase is something that was something that either tells me a good story, a bad story. And I remember the, I remember all the warts and all that, but all you see on that bookshelf is something that somebody says, that's my favorite book. So they don't need to know all the stuff that went behind the scenes. They just got to know it's their favorite book. And that that's the win. What was the great lost project? Something that you really wanted and maybe got really close that just for some reason, it just never made it across the finish line. There's, there's a couple. There's a couple. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you don't have to name names. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Like, I, I, I got it. It's funny. Um, what I used to do is I used to pitch Paul per year. So I used to go, here's what I'd like to do with you. And send him the whole thing. Boom. And you go, yes, no, yes, no, yes, boom, 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 and send it back. And there was one thing I wanted to do. <laughs> sent it to him. Sent it back, no. Sent it back in. Sent it, no. <laughs> and I sent it about four times. And I kept on pushing it to the deadline. There was one story I really wanted to tell. Okay, I'll tell the story. What the hell? I don't think I've ever, I've, I don't think I've ever said this. So I was working, when we were working on Batgirl, and this is before Stephanie Brown became Batgirl. The initial plan was to do Flowers for Algernon, I call it, with, with, Barbara, with Barbara Gordon. Meaning we were going to show that Barbara Gordon gets the use of her legs back. And uh, she gets the power back in the legs and she does all the stuff. And ultimately she realizes halfway through the story arc that she's, she's going to lose it. And when she loses, it's going to be for good. Yeah. So now she's out there hunting for her replacement and she proposes to Dick Grayson in a moment of panic. And Dick realizes it's a more panic proposal and turns it down, which creates friction between the two of them. And she alienates herself and pulls back from him. And therefore that's when she anoints Stephanie uh, Brown. And then also we had another character we were setting up and I think it was Wendy uh, in Teen Titans to be the new Oracle. So she, basically she takes the two aspects of her personality yeah. and, becomes the mentor for two new people to become the two people that she is. And then she was going to fade into the background and the story uh, we had, we had a team on it. We're always set to go. And just through, just through the machinations, everybody got cold feet just about what we we're trying to accomplish. And they just skipped over that whole storyline and just went to Stephanie in the suit, which I felt just, it was just another replacement. And already we had done several things with Stephanie Brown, which just made sure. her feel like a replacement. So I felt like we didn't get to that really meaningful handing off of that. And probably my, you know, things that you concern yourself with, I wish you can do over. There was a point of time. I'm not even going to talk about anything in particular, but point of time where was, we were, we were just moving at such speed and, you know, and you feel the wheels coming off the car, the engine's overheating, it's steaming and we're pushing it harder than we ever did before. And the problem for me was that we were moving so fast. We weren't setting up story properly. So when the story and the changes occurred, it didn't have the same emotional impact that I had hoped for. 
with the with the change occurred. We we're just so busy, you know, so busy making the changes that you you lost track of why you're making the changes right. or setting it properly so that people were invested in the changes. So you know, it's you know, it's hindsight. It's everything. You know, yeah. you know, there's ways to do everything. Some of it stuff worked. Some of the stuff didn't work. But at, at that same point, Blackest Night was working. So you didn't see the other stuff that wasn't working nearly as bad. But when Blackest Night ended, all the warts were exposed. And then all of a sudden we're like, where are we? And then that sort of gets you to new 52, you know, in a, in a weird way, you know? No, I mean, so no, I, I, I like the notion of uh, a new Oracle because yeah. or, Oracle was always a great narrative shortcut, you know, rather <laughs> than have to investigate thing. It's like, let me get on oh, the yeah. Oracle. You're free. Can you trace this for me? Yeah. I, I, I used to call, I used to call it on star in the offices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Batman, you know, Batman's in, Batman's in Batmobile. I'm the greatest detective. You know what? OnStar, what's going on? Oracle, what's going on today? Who should I be going after? And she gives them the whole download. Thank you. And we move on. <laughs> Indeed. That's, and actually, in some ways, when you think about it, it, it diminishes both characters. You know? It makes it turns Barbara Gordon into a plot device and and basically and basically it turns Batman into not the greatest detective, which it for me is is Batman. Batman for me is the greatest detective. The, the loss of detective stories in comics is something that is something that I I, 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 I lament, you know? I, I concur. And not to say that the short version is, is that I, I think Batman needs to be presented a little more the way we're told he is in other books. In other books, he walks in, everybody's oh, he's the smartest yeah. man in the room. But within his own book, there's a disconnect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the most I think the most interesting about Batman and Robin for me, in the way I used to describe it, because it's interesting to think about it. Batman, so I used to do the joke, Batman and Robin walk into a, I'm sorry, Batman and Superman. It's not Batman and Robin, Batman and Superman. So Batman and Superman walk into a bar, right? Mm-hmm. And they see Batman and everybody runs. And they see Superman and everybody pats him on the back and wants to buy him a beer. And when you think about it, the human that they could take out with a shotgun <laughs> is the one they're running from. And the guy that can take that, they take down the entire building with a sneeze is the one that they're embracing. And I think that's the most fascinating aspect of both those characters is the fact that people naturally aggregate around Superman. They feel comfortable around somebody being so supremely powerful. And Batman exists in this world of fear that makes him the most powerful character because everyone is afraid of him. I think Superman has worked very hard his entire life in most tellings of the character to fit in and to be you know, a symbol of hope, right? Yep. Whereas Batman has worked his entire life to be a symbol of fear. Yeah. And so that, and it's, yeah, exactly. And I think that's a, it's a fascinating thing. And those, that gives you great exploration for both those characters. And also when you flip the paradigms, how, what happens then, you know, and it, it's always interesting to see. And those are the types of story you want to, you know, you want to spec deal with and all that. I see questions are popping up. Should I be answering these questions? We can. I mean, it helps exactly, me. You know, how, how do you? How have you dealt with writer's block? Um, right, I do Galaxy Con because I can't get onto the. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm stuck on issue number eleven of Metalman right now. It's my big fight, big climax, and I don't and I don't. I'm trying to wrap up too much in one issue, so I'm stuck here. <laughs> I, I have a I have a question for you. You you're you you climb the mountain. You were at the top of the mountain. You, you know that you were the guy. Who, who in your life, in anything, in any of your previous jobs along the way, who are your mentors that kind of helped you along? You know, I, I, get, I ask, get that asked a question or not. And the answer is, I don't have a mentor. What I have is a portfolio 
of people. <laughs> and the way I describe it is it's fascinating because every job, I take something away from everybody that I work with and I put it into the portfolio of how I am going to manage myself moving forward. And my all my jobs over the years became my portfolio for my DC job. I worked in, in television. I worked in station relations. I, I shouldn't say it. First, I started out as a page. So I, I knew what it was like to deal with public and audiences and deal with audiences and seating audiences, keep them busy while they're bored and all these other things. Uh, so I started as a page. I worked in affiliate relations, station relations. So I knew how to deal with all the different stations and all the different needs and all the different needs around the world, around the country. So that was interesting. That becomes part of my store mentality. I worked in public relations. So I knew the mentality and understanding of the celebrity and of the talent and how you had to work with them and be able to get what you need from them, even if they think it's their idea. Uh, I did that. I worked in soap operas for a bit. Uh, so I learned about the structure and the, the pacing of storytelling. I used to sit and watch the writers break story down in there. So I learned that. I worked in children's animation. So I learned the expansiveness and the sensibilities of what went on from that. Uh, I was a story editor on, on a couple of animated series. I knew what it was like there. I had a I had to had to raise money for shows. I had to sell shows, develop shows, pitch shows. So I did a lot of work in that sense there too. And uh, it all becomes part of your portfolio. So when you come to your job, you're pulling out experiences that might not be the same exact one, but certainly have a lot of similarities that you have a reference point in your decision making, even if it's not a one for one comparison. And that becomes what's the best thing for me. And along the way, I had a lot of really wonderful people. I mean, listen, just the DC alone between Paul, the hours I spent with Paul Levitt, him, and I'm a sponge for history. I love history. You know, this is my chance. I've got every issue of Comics Journal, Amazing Heroes, Comics Reader, all these magazines, um, Comics Buyers got all the magazines with all the backstories and the snapshot of what's really happening in comics. And then I go into Paul and he tells me the story behind the story. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is the world of fun worlds for me. This is, If I left with us that information, the job was worthwhile for me, you know? And then I got a chance to sit down with, with uh, Julie, Julie Schwartz, uh, and uh, I got a chance to spend some time with him. Dick Giordano had a chance to spend time with him. Paul made sure I met a chance to sit down with these guys. The person who probably was my unofficial mentor uh, would probably be Len Wein, okay, now that I get around to it. Len, oddly, as the world's were working, his aunt was friends with my sister. I, I, uh, I spoke to him as a 13, 14-year-old. Got on the phone, wanted to know the secrets of comics. He said, don't get into it. It'll break your heart, kid. Exact words. <laughs> Meet him again. Um, I'm working in children's television. So I get my revenge. I hire him. I hire Marv. I hire a bunch of people. I did. Um, I, 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 in, in children's, when I was working at ABC Children's, I developed Thunder Agents as an animated series. I developed um, Metal Men as an animated series. Um, I was really? working, yeah, yeah. I was working with Louise Simonson. Tom Grummet did development for uh, for Metal Men back when. Um, that was just, some of the stuff was beautiful. No, no, I'm sorry. Tom did Thunder Agents. Never mind. Uh, I forgot who did the art on. Uh, I think Louise did the, the Bible for Metal Men. Then then moved over to Warner Brothers Studios. And Marv and Tom did Thunder Agents. That was a lot of fun. And then I worked with Len on some other work. Then they then when I was actually doing work as a story editor, I hired Marvin Len. Uh, as as writers for me, so that was good. 
tried to hire Steve Gerber, but the studio wouldn't let me. <laughs> they had, a, they had, a, they had a, I guess they had history, as the expression goes. <laughs> well, he 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 made his own history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I, he, I, I got, I have a hardcover Howard the Duck right over there. I love. The yeah, man. no, no, no. Listen, but I've heard Steve, the stories. Steve, Steve was, it was interesting because I got a chance to work to Steve. Up until he passed, you know, he was doing hard time, and uh, yes. uh, he was one of the guys that I, I desperately, desperately wanted to work with. There was there was six, uh, strangely, there was six writers I always wanted to work with in comics, and I worked with five of the six. Who were they? It's um, uh, Len Weave, Marv Wolfman, uh, Steve Amonhart, Steve Gerber, Jerry Conway, and Roy Thomas. Who didn't you work with? Didn't work with Roy. Just never. We just never oh. clicked. We were able to click on a project, which is a shame for me because I. I, I think Roy Thomas is probably one of the greatest unsung heroes in, in comics and probably one of the greatest co- comic engines bar none. I think the, I think the best single run on any character anybody has ever done in comics is Roy Thomas and Conan the Barbarian. And I will challenge anyone to beat me on that one. You know, I think that is, I, I the, that is the best run of comics ever. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how anybody else could even write that character after after everything he's done. On. Okay. <laughs> Just my opinion. <laughs> oh no, that's that's a that that's a good that's a very good measure. That's a very good measure yeah. for a definitive run for a character. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, it's just, you know, stuff like that, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, and I just, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that you know, a lot of guys, and like I said, I got a chance, and they, they got a chance to work with some of the guys in the DC side. What was interesting is I had a chance to, I always try to find ways to really any chance I could to get some of the guys that were involved in DC's history uh, to get back into it. And we were able to bring guys in after Julie Schwartz passed, we did a bunch of books that with Julie Schwartz presents, and we brought a lot of the old guys back, older talent back to do that. We did the retro comics when we were moving into the, I think that was, what was that? Was that the New 52? I don't know, one of the two. Maybe the New 52. Those Convergence books, right? No, no, yeah. it was before that. Before that. We, we did a series of books. They were called Retro 60, 57. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That was, be, that was in between. Yeah, it was, I, I, needed to, I needed to fill the gap of product. So we did a lot of that stuff. So we did a lot of that. You know, I, I, any chance I got to revisit, and you want to you want to pay tribute to the people that really really got you. Oh, there. You you oh. you, work, you liked working with um, with our with our mutual friend uh, Keith Giffen. Well, Keith Keith is yeah Keith is Keith is uh, possibly Keith Giffen was the first talent I met as a DC employee. Uh, he stuck his head in my doorway. It's brand new month in the job, month and a half. So get out. He did exactly run, run as fast as you can. Keep running. Don't look back. Get out of here. It will kill you. And left. And uh, we've been friends since. Well, I think it's killed him twice now. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Got to do that, Keith. I was like, you know, get out of here. Get out of here now. Yeah. I get a chance. Go. Listen, Keith. You know, Keith was Keith was the corner one of my cornerstones for when we did the fifty-two weekly series. Yes. Um, you know, again, so much was on the talent, but he was the glue that kept the thing moving all the way through. The, the writers were amazing, but Keith doing the storyboards and ultimately was the was the. The authority figure behind the scenes, making sure that everybody stayed on track, it was it was was valuable because they everybody had a lot of respect for each other in that room. But my funny story, my funny Omax story with Keith Giffen. So, so you know, Keith and I work very loosey goosey. You know, so I give him an outline, he gives me something back, and I write whatever he gives me. So it was a lot of fun because it's almost like, well, what the what's this about? So there was one book, one issue that I really wanted to be perfect. Right. I wanted it to be perfect. So I'm like, I'm, I did more detailed outline more than anything before I call him up. I said, Keith, 
This is the one I said, you just got to stick as close to what I put together. This is so tight and dense. You got to make it work. And I said, he goes, sure, Dan, no problem. Comes back to me. He goes, listen, listen, I, I, I got what you got. I only made one change, but I think you'll like it. And I said, what's your one change? He goes, I added a seven-page fight scene between Superman and Omac at the opening. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you, what? I'm like, what did you cut out? What did you destroy? I'm, I'm apoplectic. I'm like, this was brilliant. How do you mess with it? So, so basically, <laughs> so basically, he hands it back to me, and the son of a bitch got my 20 pages into those 13 perfectly. Did not miss a beat, did not compromise a scene, anything. So meanwhile, I got this seven-page fight scene opening up there, and it's Superman versus Omak, and I call him back. I said, okay, you got it all right. Can you explain to me what's happening, what's going on in the fight scene? He goes, you're the writer. You figure it out. And he hangs up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) If it was anybody other than Keith Giffen, I wouldn't believe you. (laughs) And I'm like, sure. That's the way this world of Oz works. You know that, right? (laughs) And that's the fun stuff. You know what I mean? That's the fun stuff. Um, I think think about writer artist combo. Wow, that's a tough question. You know, there's a lot of guys that I like. You know, it's you know, I'm just not good at picking favorites because I just I like so much. I got I got I got you know I got I got eighty some on loan boxes of what I like. You know, and if if I didn't like it, I wouldn't hold on to it. That's the thing. You know, I mean, there's some things like some things more than others, but. Uh, I love so much. I love, I love so much what we do. You know, I was a, for DC for me. I was for artist wise. I was a big Jim Aparo fan, and I'd love to say I really like Jim Aparo and Bob Haney uh, because they're just ah. so freaking crazy. I don't know what to say sometimes. I well, mean, people talk about how Bob Haney's books take place on like this alternate Earth. Oh, I don't know. If it's, I don't know. I, that would that that's giving no way. A reference. I don't even know if there's a reference point. Right, so there's no way you could make like. Batman hanging out with Sergeant Rock. I love that stuff. And Jim Aparo drawing his, he has to draw himself out of it. So he's in trouble and he's trying. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? I'm like, but it looks beautiful. You know, it's funny. I was just talking about, I was just, I was uh, my issue, issue of Metal Man. I actually refer to, (laughs) refer to one of those issues. There's a, Tina's playing with this little kid. And she goes, remind me to tell you about the time I saved Batman when he's tied to the front of a train. And I'm like, because it was a brave and bold with the metal men that I just, just remember. That's all. And you That's, know what? That was my first exposure to the metal men that, yeah. that whether they, they, they hijacked the train that has the Declaration of Independence <laughs> and the constitution. <laughs> but it's, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, of course they would take them on tour, right? Exactly. It was at 76. You got to take things on tour. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I hey, hey, I, I discovered Haiti a little bit later on, but uh, yeah, just a madman. And uh, thanks to those uh, the big showcases that put up under your uh, the black and white uh, phone books. Yeah. You did like like it's his run be- his run on Metamorpho, which I have sitting over there. Yeah, stuff. I tell you, you look at some of the stuff and you're just going, "What were they thinking?" But you know what? That's why I adore it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because. It's like I literally said, what were you thinking? And and part of me goes, why can't I think like that? I want to be a writer. How are they getting so crazy? And where are we going? And how are they taking me to all these places and all these weird ideas? I mean, you know, you look at Dial H for Hero. I mean, one of my favorite characters is Eclipso. That's another one that's just, 
uh, just so much, so much fun. <laughs> I don't know what to say because because they're, they're wildly inconsistent, and that's that's also kind of interesting to me. I don't know why. It's just it is. And I, I and I and I, I again I thank you for that because there's a tendency I think in modern comics to kind of poo-poo the older stuff or whatever. But uh, you love you you embraced it under your tenure and any chance yeah. you had, you say like, hey, let's let's do a retro book here. Let's do it there. Well, what's, what's- great about comics is unlike any other mediums you could get away with anything yeah you you go wacky you could go absurd and there's a place for comedy there's a place for horror there's a place for you know your superheroes and tights and there's there's a place for everything you know it's i mean the audience is what the audience is it's more harder now but the audience is the audience is it's you know that's i mean that's the thing we gotta we gotta we gotta we gotta learn how to pass it on and 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 enjoy what we had, but understand that it's it's got to move, it's got to evolve, it's got to change, it's got to grow, yeah. it's got to be. It's you know, I used to. There's, I tell the story again. I love you know. I I have a story for everything, as you probably noticed already. But I used to tell a story about my kids, right? And there was a moment in my house. I'm going upstairs, and my kids are up there. They're listening to music really loud. I go upstairs. They turn the music down, and I said, "Why'd you turn it down for?" He goes, "Dad, you really can't be listening to these lyrics," <laughs> you know. And they were trying to protect me from the music. You know, and we are so desperate to get children to enjoy what we loved. And that's just part of who we are. But on the other side, they need to find what's theirs. And again, the most intriguing thing I can say about comics to date, the most intriguing thing is we all wear this badge of courage. You know, my mother threw, I I used to have that comic, but my mother made me throw that because she thought it was bad for me. Imagine if I still had those comics, you know, and now the mothers and fathers are reading the comics, the kids wanting them to do it. It's a complete reversal. It's so what we had was something that was unique to us. That was almost forbidden that we wanted to own control and, and, and possess. And now our parents were trying to take away from us, which made us hold on to it twice as hard. And now our parents are trying to hand it to us, to the kids and the kids are embracing it in places, but I still think the kids have to find what's there. Well, I, on that, on that subject, I have I have two questions. Two, well, kind of a I get there. I think the kids have found what they like. It's called manga. Yeah, right. Yeah. Manga sells an insane amount of units each yeah. month, and that is it's comic books. It's just right. it's a cool. different form of comics. And I think you were, you guys were branching out more into the young adult, you know, graphic novels. To yep. get after that audience, and I think there was some success there. Yep. I mean, the the average person in a comic store doesn't know who Raina Talgemeier is, right? But in the real world, she's outselling Batman and Superman. Exactly. exactly. And she's making comics. She's the J.K. Rollins of comics, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. I think the kids are finding comics, but I think that we, the old men, yep, we like the comics in the way that we like them in the packaging. Yep. We like them. But the young people are finding them in their own way. Yep. And, 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 and we need to adapt. And I mean, this is a, that's why I said this is an interesting moment in time. It, this should be a level of reflection, not just about how do we get through this time, but also who are we when this is over? Um, if you're going to flip the switch and think that everything was the same that it was when, it, when everything stopped and it's going to start up again exactly where it was, I'm, I'm not sure if that works. I don't know. You know, we'll see. You know, we're all going to die out, right? We're, yeah. we're dinosaurs, you know. And so, oh, I think- the, uh, can I? I'm going to. This is a terrible story. I'm sorry. I'm like, what the hell? Uh, I can I see now. I can do my bad stories. So, when I first started at DC Comics, true story, started at DC Comics, 
Um, I went to a, conventions, go back to conventions. So I go to WonderCon. It's one of my first shows. It's still in Oakland. Last last year in Oakland. Yep, yep. When I um, so I'm in Oakland. I go to a panel. I had seven of our best writers on stage. And I mean best writers. Seven of us writers. Maybe, maybe 40 people in the audience. Maybe. Of a room that holds 500. Scattered about, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh, this is what because I want because I was really into conventions. I really wanted to go in there and pound that pulpit. So I wanted to know what our convention presence was. So I'm seeing this, and so I'm sitting there going, and these guys, every question, every question to that panel was about archives. Every question: Are you going to collect this in archives? Are you going to collect this in archives? Are you going to collect that in archives? And then the one person asked the question that sent a chill down my spine. And he goes, are you going to finish collecting All-Star Comics? Remember, we were doing All-Star Comics, the collection, before yeah. I die. He said that. And I said to myself, holy shit, our audience is going to die and there's nobody else in this room. And that's when I go, okay, we got to get younger. We got to get bolder. We got to get more aggressive. We got to be something different. But we are certainly not going to be what we are right now. And that was the start. The hard part about change is that you get the sense that you got to constantly keep on doing it and you got to pace yourself. You got to figure it out, you know, and, you know, some places we paced ourselves well, and that's when it worked. And when we didn't pace ourselves well, it didn't work as well because there is a rhythm to this on how this all works. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I'm, 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 a, you know, I'm, I'm a comic book fan since I'm a child, been reading comics my whole life. I, you know, I own comic book stores. I was, a, you know, overstreet advisor. The price got at a certain point in time in my life. I love comics. I run these shows now and, and like yourself, I think uh, I think one of the great things about your your um, uh, resume is that you had real world experience outside of comics, mm-hmm. and then came into it having worked in the real world. Yeah, and so we we've been uh, you know I have this very successful convention business with you know tens of thousands of people. Yeah. You just went to Minneapolis, and that was a first time show, and we had nineteen thousand people there. Right, which you know not our you know the Miami show was a much bigger show, the Raleigh show. You know, we're clocking in 40, you know, last year we had 40,000 yeah. uh, 40, unique adults. Now, of those 40,000 people, how many people are reading comics? And it kills me that I could bring in the biggest comic book guys in the world. Right. But the lines for the voice actors are right. going to work them. And right. what you said about the panels, I'm going to have panels with guys who I think are legends that, you right. know, I'm drooling of the thought of that panel happening. And like you said, it's going to have 20, 40 people in it, whereas the panel with the Green Power Ranger is going to have 2,000. Right. And yes, the, 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 the industry has to shift because we are going to die out, exactly what you said. And I think the biggest I think one of the biggest problems is that digital hasn't delivered the way we all hoped. Right. And that we, we, we were not seeing the digital sales, the digital conversion that we all thought would save the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the young adult stuff is the only. Maybe we're, it might be all right, but we have to, we have to see. I mean, on the digital side, one of the things I have to say is, and uh, unfortunately I got to put on the, I got to put the business hat on for a second. What, what we've done is we've curated down our fan base to a very strong collector fan base, meaning that that's one of we we've we've shorthand we've shorthanded our storytelling we are into just amalgams and changes of everything 
Um, everything that breaks right now is things that are, that are new interpretations of things that are people familiar with. And we're not even reinforcing what the base is anymore. We're just going with the changes and uh, the, just the, 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 the mashing of concepts and ideas together because people are so familiar with the base idea that they just want to see variations of it, not continuations of it. And then you push it down to the collector's market and to the speculator market and the service of that in the variant covers and the collectability of those things and the collectability of what books they are. And what we've done is we've narrowed this audience base to a type of product that is really um, not inviting to new people. It's impenetrable in places. Uh, and not impenetrable in, in a way like people might say crisis on infinite earths is impenetrable because there was a charm to that. So much stuff was happening, but you, they took the time to explain the important moments and not when I look at a comic and I see 500 characters standing shoulder to shoulder, staring forward blankly, homogeneously, everything's lost its sensibility, its personality, its individuality. And I say, and I use this expression, we read comics with frog DNA. Okay. And what that means, if, you, if you're a fan of Jurassic Park, what I mean is that we fill in the blanks that are not on the pages that are not being told or shown because we know these characters so well. So when we read a book, we know how a character is, why he's doing certain things because we know the past history of that character and how he acts and behaves. So therefore what he's doing may make sense to me, but for a new reader, this makes absolutely no sense. And it's not inviting. And I don't know what he's about. And I don't know what the motivations is. I had a great moment when I was talking to a fan. And I said, yeah, I love to do origin stories. It says, oh, not another origin story. You did one 20 years ago. <laughs> right. 20 years ago. You're right. Because to our fan base, 20 years ago is yesterday. Yeah. Because they remember these books like it was yesterday. And, oh, we, need, we need those 10-year-olds. Yes. You forget. That's what I said. We all started 10, 12, 13. Now people are picking up the books for the first time. 22, 25, 35. It's a different capability at distant sense. Indeed. Because when I think of Crisis and Infinite Earths and I think of Supergirl dead in the cover, I think of it as charming as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of weird. You gotta re and by the way, Not also, Mike, though. My, Mike's a big Supergirl uh, mark. So. Yeah. Oh, well, no. let's, let's, let's even be more honest. But the death of Supergirl. We knew about that months in advance. That did, certainly didn't hurt that book. You know, and wow. everything is now so precious, we don't want to even reveal, like, anything until the last minute. Remember, it's it's going to be a really pretty exciting book. I'm going to be yeah. excited when you get it. Can't <laughs> wait to see it. Can't wait to hear you read it. <laughs> and, and and but you're but you're absolutely right though about the about cultivation about in our I, I call us the direct market generation. We didn't necessarily yeah. put the comic book stores in. We didn't create them. But when Mike and I were at the age we should have been aging out of the spinner racks, the direct market locked us in and made us lifers. Yeah, and 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 the other thing too about digital and it, it there is a mistaken arrogance that we have that one size fits all because we've gone from periodicals into collections without much revision to material that we believe that anything works in any format. And that's not true. And if you're working in the digital format, you have to understand the format. You understand how people read in that format. You have to understand who's reading in that format and you should create stories for those people rather than thinking that what you create in a periodical that will be done in a trade that will be read as a 200, 300, 400 page book is, is acceptable as a digital read. If you're just would, doing digital book as just page turns on a screen, there's no, there's no appeal there. You know? I was very disappointed 
that motion comics didn't succeed better. Yeah, uh, well, I, I think motion comics was a waste, personally. As an animation guy, that's neither fish nor foul. Um, it's not a comic book. It's not an animated series. What is it? It's, it's nothing's worse, in my opinion, than somebody pacing out your reading. You, everybody reads at a different speed, at a different place and all that. And if something's trying to pace you for that, then it's got to be engaging in a way that motion comics wasn't, you know? How, how was the Walmart experiment going? It's it's been interesting. I mean, you know, now since I'm not part of it, I mean, the start of it was a very particular one. The goal was to um, create accessible material and reprint material that allowed us to see if there's any casual fans that might pick things up because of awareness through other media. That was the purpose, you know. And for me, it's I used to call it the barbershop comic. You know, it's the comic that you read in the you know. How did I get into DC and Mar DC, not Marvel, DC, 80 page giants, world's finest, Superman, Batman, you know, sitting there on the shelf, 25 cents. I'm there thumbing through it, waiting to get my haircut. Yes, I did used to get my haircut at a point. Hasn't been there for a while. That's maybe why those comics don't sell anymore. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the, the first books I, I remember getting were the, um, the, the, the Whitman sample packs. Yeah. You know, that my grandmother would get yeah, you know, in the five yeah. and time, you know, the three books, three comics for, you know. And I think they'll get back to that at some point. I think they're still doing I think we'll are still doing it with Marvel at the time. I just I just like giants. I like I like I like a big book. You know, like, you know, I used yeah. to buy, you know, I used to buy Marvel Tales or collector's item classics or every annual or I, I, when Jeanette and DC did the dollar comics. I was all over those things like no business. I bought every one of them. You know, it was twice as expensive or three times expensive. Anything else I was buying. Oh, Jeanette had such a brilliant plan. Yeah. It got yanked out from under her. Yeah. You it was know. it's a lot of good stuff they were planning to do in those days. And you know, then you get the implosion and everything goes to hell. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. then they're fighting for survival and then crisis comes and then the direct market comes and now we got our feet back on the ground again. What was the first comic you ever read that you remember? Okay, so since I've been going through all my old comics and I actually have a lot of old comics, first comics I ever had read. Um, I have a copy of the Flintstones of the World's Fair, 1964. That mm. might be my first comic. Classics Illustrated of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was possibly my favorite childhood book. So I have that. Uh, Superhero-wise, that's an easy one. Because you know what? You have databases now you can find out. Yeah. And lo and behold, the two first comics that I ever had, I think came out in the same month. So it's... Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 40, Spidey Saves the Day, which is possibly my favorite comic of all time. Wow. Um, okay. yep. And because this is my first, not because my first, it's just I love, I love the visual from that. Is great book. Yeah, it's stunning. And Jeremy is possibly my favorite artist of all time. The other one was uh, Batman, which was the introduction, I believe, of Poison Ivy. Um, oh. I first Poison Ivy was my very first Batman book. And I, I, I relegate both those purchases to the Spider-Man cartoon and the Batman TV show. That's what got me to buy those books. Yeah. Yeah. But then the, after that, I collect everything. After that, I was not a superhero guy. Everything was about monster comics. I bought every monster. House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Tales of the Unexpected, Ghosts, um, Where Monsters Well, Creatures where, uh, Creatures where Creatures on the Loose, uh, Monsters on the Prowl, all that stuff. I love, I love that stuff. Did you do that? <laughs> Did you stick with it during uh, uh, Marvel's uh, 70s horror phase? Oh, man, I have every single thing. That is that is my super sweet spot. 
Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf Tomb by Dracula. Night. I'm a, I'm a huge Tomb of Dracula fan. That's Brilliant. what I remember. Wolf that's Mark, some, of, some of the finest work from Marvin G. Cole together. Brilliant. Those, you know, talk about creative teams that are wonderful together. That's a great yeah. creative team, man. That is just, that's, and, the, and by the and way, that's still a great, great criminally team. underrated. Yeah. I mean, amazing work they did. Even Night Force. I love that book. But uh, I got all those. I got the Werewolf by Night. I got the the Ghost Early Ghost Riders. I was a Man Thing. One again, go back to Steve Gerber. Man Thing's a fabulous book. The, the, the their monster stuff was just anything with Mike Plug. Mike Plug drew it. I bought it. <laughs> I, I, I just did. Right. You know, you know his, and you know, and you know, and then then you get into my sci-fi world with. Anything Starlin did, I bought that. I just was a big Jim Starlin fan. I'm really excited by his Kickstarter, uh, which Red Star. It's kind of fun. Uh, so yeah. I'm jumping in the one. I'm very excited about that. I yeah. just uh, I just got had gotten the the three hardcovers. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually I have I have it all from 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 Epic Illustrated all the way through, yeah, through all the incarnations through Epic and First and wherever else it was. I'm in the minority when I'm a, I always say like, what's your favorite Jim Sterling thing? I'm like Gilgamesh too. That's weird. Okay. Sure. <clears throat> I just yeah. don't, don't. Well, that, well, the death of Captain Marvel was first, but you know, then Gilgamesh. Yeah. The, the warlock stuff's even, it's, it's oh. pretty trippy. It's a lot of fun, man. Oh, absolutely. Made me feel, made me, as a kid, it made me feel older and smarter. <laughs> hey, anything that evokes uh, the emotion. That's, 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 that's the part of entertainment. I just, I just felt smarter reading this books. So I don't know why. <laughs> Did your sister read comics? Uh, no, she uh, she was famous monsters of Filmland. That's what she collected. Uh, my so that's was, where your love of monsters comes from. Oh yeah, big time. Got, she, met, got, she, she when she was when she was in the hospital, she corresponded with uh, John Zachary, uh, yeah. who is the host, Roland, the host on in Philadelphia, New York, for a period of time. Oh, and I, also, I've, you know, I've cosplayed as Zachary. I know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, I've got I, I, I've got pictures with him. We got family photos with him, and I think that's why I, I became a big fan of Spanguli and friends with Spanguli over the years uh, here. And uh, and also, she was friends with uh, Forrest J. Ackerman. And as a ten year old, I got to meet Forrest J. Ackerman um, and got to wear. He actually let me wear the uh, Dracula signet ring, which he was wearing, and he let me as a kid. And this is no selfies in those days, guys. Never got a picture of that, but still remember the fact that I got a chance to wear Dracula's uh, signet ring uh, when I was 10 years old. Did, <laughs> so, did, you, did you ever tour the Acker Mansion? Never made it. Never made it. Neither never did I, got, unfortunately. Never did. I never, I never got there in time. I used to hear stories about it. Uh, that's the only time I had got a chance to meet him in person. Got a chance to meet Ray Bradbury, which was wonderful. Nice. Uh, really wonderful. Um, nice. You know, and that was that was kind of a moment. And I missed Ray Harryhausen, which was that's my trifecta in yeah. a weird way. We were in uh, when we were working when I was working at Mainframe Computer Animation Company. Harryhausen did a tour of the studio when I wasn't there, and I was I didn't know what was happening, or else I would have flew on my own money to go go there, and I missed it. Uh, but probably better I didn't because supposedly he hated computer animation immensely and 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 didn't didn't take kindly to any of the stuff. But uh, but the entire studio was in awe of him and rightfully so. You know. So. <laughs> here's here's a here's a crazy one I'm gonna throw at you. Uh, I am a huge huge prisoner fan. So okay. uh, and that's I, I heard about reboot after the fact when we yes. got to the great fight. They did a prisoner <laughs> episode. What? Yeah. What are you talking about? And yeah. then it took me years to track it down. But uh, how did that? How did that come about? And did McGowan ever hear anything about it? We tried, no, I don't think he ever did. I think we tried to get in touch with him to do the voice, and we we never were able to connect. How it, the, how it came about was through the wrongest of reasons. 
I had a th I was story editing the series at the time, and a script came in that was so unproducible, I had to throw it out. Uh, we were doing it oddly a, a twenty thousand leagues under the sea riff that we just could not technically pull off. So I had to throw the entire script out. I was behind. I was behind time and over budget. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you watch that episode. The game was mainframe, the idea that he entered into the game, uh, and mm -hmm. therefore that's the whole – he was in this loop, in this trap. So what I did is I found a way to reuse old sets and old things as a cost-cutting measure. So yeah. we wound up using everything that we already had in order to save money on it, and ultimately we wound up making the uh, – doing the script, and we were doing all these bad golf jokes in it, and it's just a very silly script. And we wound up writing – I wound up writing that script in about two days – because uh, we were really behind, really behind it, and I, I never forgot. Because well, in a bit of um, irony, that's how long it took McGowan to write Fallout, the final episode of The Prisoner. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. He locked himself away in his trailer for two days, and then come out and said, "All right, we're going to film this." Yeah. <laughs> and everybody was like, "What?" So yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of fun, and the, the, the probably some of my best work experiences at Mainframe. Some of the best people I ever worked with. Some of the most infinitely creative people I've ever worked with in my life were in that studio on every level from the producers to the animators, to the executive, everybody was just, it was just, it's just, you know, every once in a while you just, you work in a place that's magic. That was magic to me. You know, right on. what's the, what's uh, you got any ideas on the future? Yeah, I, I was, so I was planning to take a couple of months off and travel and spend some time at home. Got half of it. Right. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> You know, I don't know. It's it's kind of intriguing to me right now. Um, I've said it out loud before. I'll say it again. Got a little bit of an animation bug back. It's kind of you know, it's kind of kind of intriguing to me. Uh, so I've been doing some some work in making some, some uh, motions in that area over the last uh, uh, month or so. So that's been fun. It's I, I'm actually enjoying the time down. You know, you know, we were we're running full speed for 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 18 years. You know, so. Uh, uh, it's a little difficult to, to slow down, but it's it's kind of enjoyable when you do. So you might as well make the most of it. It's not the best of circumstances as everything going on around us. It, it, it's I got a chance to rebox my comics. I got a chance to redo, the, and it's and if it gets really bad, it lasts really long. I got a whole wall full of models just waiting to get built. So. <laughs> okay, what kind of models? Oh, you're kidding me, right? You know them all. Uh, it's all the old Aurora <laughs> models. I got every. Okay, I got, yeah, right. um, the I have the. I have a lot of the originals. I have a lot of the knockoffs. I'm going to build the knockoffs. Leave the originals in the boxes. I got the comic scenes. I've been trying to collect the prehistoric scenes. That's been a little difficult. I still have my monster scenes from when I was a kid, um, and I, they got all the new ones on it. So I'm, I'm just refilling that set there. Got a couple of. I got a Nautilus. I'm dying to build. I just bought the last one. I bought. I said my last non-essential purchase before we got locked away. I bought a, a Gorgo model. So I got to do Gorgo. That's next. <laughs> Every time I think of Aurora, I always think of the the one page comic ad where Vampirella and the mad scientist yeah. go and kidnap the girl. Monster scenes one. Yeah, I got the. I remember the one with the boxes. I, I guess it's, I call it the Alan Moore ad now because it was nine boxes with all the different monsters in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was the frightening lightning days. That was awesome. <laughs> very true. Very true. Very true. So. uh when you look back on it, uh, again, you 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 were in the trenches and you were out there. And if you you want you wanted to meet everybody, you wanted to hear what everybody had to say. At a convention, is there is there a moment you had with a fan that really resonates with you and that's really stuck with you and it's going to stick with you as you go on? You know, it's a lot of the kid moments. 
when the kids come up dressed up and they talk to you. There's one or two kids that I met along the way that had such in-depth knowledge. I was stunned on how they knew. And then I stopped and thought, wait a minute, they're 10, 12 years old. I was that kid. You know what I mean? This is, they know as much about comics as I knew about comics. You know, they just have to do the stuff that when they're younger. And I'm like, it, it, it was this weird, weird disconnect because you're always arguing with people either your age or in the 30s or 40s. And here I am with a 10, 12-year-old, and this kid is correcting me. And I, I forgot what it was. It was a Wally West thing. And, boy, he just would not relent. He had every answer to every dodge I gave him, you know. And, and <laughs> So it's this great moment. And it's a classic. It's one of my favorite moments. So it's this little kid. He asked me a Wally West question. And I'm dodging the bullet in my best form. I'm, I, if I had tap shoes on, I would have been up there, hat and cane, doing the whole thing. And I give a good three, four-minute answer. I think it's heartfelt. It's all this. And I finish it. And he said, and the kid stands there at the mic. And I'm like, and I'm like, you're still saying this? He says, yes. And I go, do you have another question? And he goes, you didn't answer my first one. <laughs> Well, what do I do naturally? I said, you, you're coming up on stage with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the kids sit next to me. And every time somebody asked a question that I couldn't answer, I turned to the kid for him to give an answer to it. And That's he gave great. Some, we had like a fun little answer worked out every time. And it was just one of those moments that was just a hoot. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so it's the cosplayers. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a cosplay. we have, we, the cosplayers are always interesting. I always and I always like to bring them up because I that level of dedication is spectacular. I really there's there's some cosplayers that don't know the characters, which is kind of interesting. But the ones who do dress up the characters because they love that character, oh god, is that fun? Um, that yeah. was that was the first time I met you, and uh, we have a picture of that. And you asked to take a picture with me when you saw me in this. So which one? Okay, oh, which one? Oh, there you go. <laughs> My my Frederick Wortham uh, cosplay as I go around with a copy of Seduction of the Innocent. Please, is that a Megacon? Uh, that was yeah, that, yeah, I think that was a Megacon. Uh, yeah, like several years it's ago. Hard to tell you, it's, it's early on because you know what I did later on. And if you know this, there's a trick I have in case. I'm gonna give you my little convention trick. What I did is there's certain cities I hit in the conventions. I went out. I was up at uh, Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame, and I bought hats from every city that I go to conventions in. So what I would do is I would go to the convention wearing the hat of the, the team that plays in that city. So I always could recognize where I was in the picture. So that way I pretended like I remembered it because I remember, oh, that's Chicago, isn't it? And it's because I'm wearing the Chicago hat or something like that. So I see the Superman hat. I'm like, I don't know where that is. Or well, I could tell by the hat. Yeah, don't tell by the badge. Yeah, so. yeah, the badge. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, but it's still fun. It's I like to do it by the hats. <laughs> Just put them on the panels or something like that. It's kind of fun. well. Orlando doesn't have any teams, so you know it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could wear a Mickey Mouse hat. That would give it away. <laughs> that's that's true. True. So Dan, I think we've uh, we've kept you long enough. No, that's fine. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, understand this. We're fans of you, bro, and uh, we're, we're really, really going to be excited to whatever project you tackle next. And if, and if absolutely, again, I, 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 I think I think history is going to be, be kind to your tenure, and um, thank you for everything you. that you've done. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the future brings for you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to GalaxyCon Talks Comics. 
We hope you'll join us again next time, and don't forget to follow us online at galaxygontalkscomics.com. <laughs>